Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Tom O'Dell and producer Laurie Blundell to talk about how they wrote, recorded and produced the album Best Day of My Life. Tom O'Dell is a pianist and singer-songwriter from West Sussex, England. Introduced to the piano at the age of six, throughout his school years, Tom studied classically up to grade seven. Having simultaneously nurtured a love for songwriting, after moving to Brighton to study at BIM, he began performing with a band as Tom and the Tides, then, after moving to London, started to perform as a solo artist. Relentlessly playing shows, Tom's music reached the ears of Lily Allen, who signed him to her label in the name of, and in October 2012, he released his debut EP, Songs from Another Love. Including the smash hit single Another Love, the EP earned Tom a nomination for the BBC Sound of 2013 and saw him win the Critics' Choice at that year's Brits. Tom's debut album, Long Way Down, released in June 2014, hit the number one spot in the UK. His second and third albums, 2016's Wrong Crowd and 2018's Jubilee Road, continued that success, reaching the top five. His fourth album, 2021's Monsters, ventured into much darker territory, experimenting with sampling and more synthesized effects, and was also a top five charting album. His latest, Best Day of My Life, was released in October 2022 and saw Tom fully return to his roots, recording only his voice and the piano, his most intimate album yet. Laurie Blundell is a composer, songwriter and producer based in London. Training classically as a pianist, Laurie studied performance and composition at the Guildhall School of Music and Trinity College of Music. And after graduating in 2003, he began to perform extensively as a soloist. As well as notable performances with the English Symphony Orchestra and English Chamber Orchestra, his wide-ranging interests in music have taken him much further afield, studying traditional dance music across Brazil and West Africa. Equally at home composing and improvising, Laurie's talents have seen him take on work as musical director for Alex Zeldin's Faith, Hope and Charity at the National Theatre, as well as composing for projects with renowned director Peter Brook. Alongside his success in the academic and classical spheres, Laurie has consistently had a foot in the world of music production, working on both his own projects and for other artists, including songs on the Mystery Jets 2020 album A Billion Heartbeats. Having developed a close partnership with Tom O'Dell, producing his 2021 album Monsters, in 2022 the pair returned to the studio, working side by side on the piano-centered record Best Day of My Life. Today, I'm here at Tom and Laurie's studio in Hackney, North East London, and what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Enemy. There's a side to me I never want the world to see I know that if I let it free They would probably Judge me, judge me. I lay in bed at night, watch you as you try to break my mind. Used to be a friend to me, now you're just my. 
It is Enemy by Tom O'Dell from the album Best Day of My Life. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm sat with Tom O'Dell. Hello, Tom. Hello. And Laurie Blundell, do you yes. say? Blundell, yeah. Blundell. And we're actually in the room that I think you wrote and recorded this album. Yes, that's the piano right there. Right behind you. I mean, it's a great space. It's got lots of different equipment, lots of keyboards mm. um, and lots of drapes and bits of rug mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and plants and stuff but it's a really nice warm space yeah it's nice it's a nice building to spend lots of time in we're both piano players and so there's lots of keyboards in here which we didn't use we only use that the one piano which is right behind you tom so yeah and in terms of we've worked together for a while now yeah for since 2018 19 we'd say we actually met at a songwriting circle oh yeah in south london peckham there was like 10 writers, would you say? Yeah. It was a friend of mine's an artist, and he put it on with this guy called Will Reese from The Mistress, or was, was in The was Mistress. Was in The Mistress, yeah. And then we, another mutual friend, Henry Hudson, who's an, a visual artist, had an exhibition, and he, somehow there was a songwriting circle in this space. And we were sat next to each other, and we'd never met before. And you had a keyboard. There was only one keyboard there, wasn't there? And that's keyboard. why we were sat next to each other. Yeah. There was only and then you keyboard. sort of passed it down. Yeah. So I sort of watched you play and you sung, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. For my sins. <laughs> <laughs> but this is interesting because I, I saw you perform, Tom, at one of Will's nights. Really? For this songwriting circle. Maybe not the same one, though. No, I think it was a bit later than that. But um, it was in what seemed to be a, kind a church. Of a church. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Mungo's. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was a really beautiful evening. Yeah. And, and everybody was sat around in a circle. And because it was in a church, you, you were in the center. And then the audience were sat around in a circle behind you in the pews. Yeah. And each person there would take a turn to perform a couple of songs that yeah. were works in progress. So yeah. I presume it was similar that night that you first yeah. met. Yeah, it's all works in progress. Yeah. yeah. And it was a, just a really lovely way of watching musicians work. You know? Yeah. And, and it was almost... It felt like it was helpful therapy for them as well, you know, mm. that they get to summon up the bravery to share their songs mm. with 11 other people who are also songwriters. And, yeah. and just to get that support and encouragement, it was really lovely. And it removes the terrible hierarchy, which is often in place, you know, at festivals and gigs when, you know, there's sort of like a pyramid of the large artists in their big dressing rooms and... And um, there's not actually as much interaction often at festivals as you'd sort of hope there would be. Yeah. But at those songwriter circle, it removes all baggage and it allows relationships like our one to blossom, I guess. And we got to know each other. And I watched you play and I was just blown away by your chords. <laughs> I was like, these are cool chords. It was a fucking weird song. It was weird, yeah. <laughs> It's like, isn't it? I think, I think it was a sort of sh a stripped back version of it as well. It go, it go, it go, it's sort of, I think it's like a six minute, six and a half minute thing that I, in its original form. You should explain though that you're also Laurie's a very uh, well educated. <laughs> no, but like you've been involved in classical music for you know you're way overqualified produce my silly songs like <laughs> it's you know you've been in conservatoires yeah. and well yeah i've had formal training formal, I think. formal, formal training. training yeah but yeah. Th that's a very, hindrance very big. it's a hindrance and it, it, the interesting thing with that is that it can hinder the process very much very easily as we've sort of discovered i think also you know if it becomes too cerebral or too learnt or mm. too 
too prescribed, something you already know how to do, then I think it can very easily, it somehow it's like dead in the process. So I think a lot of it is actually actively not engaging that part of your learnt. But I think, stuff. yeah. But I think you and I, that's often where we complement each other is because I, I would say that your cerebral knowledge, you know, based musicality, mm. you do have the wonderful thing that a lot of, well, the sort of cliche classical musician doesn't, but they do, I think, is the you're able to articulate music. You know, you'll understand to observe the feeling of playing. You're saying that it can hold you, hold you back, but I think what's amazing about your knowledge and your education, your understanding is it doesn't. But I would say that I come from the opposite place, which is all intuition and instinct. Yeah. And I think that's why... The marriage, in a sense. Yeah, I think that's where... <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's where the, the marriage is most, most impressive. Yeah. Well, it clearly works. I mean, you've obviously been working together for a few years now, and it's interesting because when we listen to Best Day of My Life, it's completely different to Monsters. Yeah. The previous album, which was only released a mm. year before... Mm. And you obviously both worked on that together yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and they couldn't be more different in a way. You know, that's quite a big production. It's got yeah. lots of different people involved in it, all sorts of sounds. Whereas here, everything is stripped back and mm. simple. And I, that's the kind of first question is really, what were the intentions when you were coming to write this record? Well, I think ever since I was 11 years old, I was obsessed with songwriting. That was my road into music. And... I became interested, you know, I got LimeWire, the illegally, I illegally downloaded so many thousands of songs and I listened to, you know, the, the great era of songwriting was the 70s. You know, that's when the sort of technology and art just met in this wonderful moment of words and music and it was at the forefront, you know, Joni and Neil Young and Crosby, Stills and Nash and, you know, Elton, Billy and Springsteen and like that was the way I got into music. I was obsessed with words and music and how those two things go together and I think it got to a point where I've made three records which were massively inspired by that journey and I I wanted to tear that up. I wanted to break that and all the habits I'd formed of sitting at the piano and writing songs, I was beginning to meet a sort of dead end with it. I was beginning to feel uninspired. And I would say through listening to contemporary music, seeing how people in sort of hip hop and not just hip hop, all sorts of contemporary music, I'd say streaming mostly, what streaming's done to music, I sort of tore down all of those habits. And I think Monsters, you know, coinciding with that, I was also having a sort of mental breakdown. <laughs> um, but I would say that, you know, it's a very abrasive record to listen to Monsters. And I don't actually like it very much, but it's real, you know, like the thing you're listening to is real. It's, um, I, there's no, there's nothing sort of fabricated in there or fake, you know, it's like real emotion and a real discovery into trying to break those habits, I'd say. Yeah. Which paved the way for this record, which is obviously a piano vocal album, but it's not just inspired by, you know, Joni, yeah. Mitchell. It's yeah. inspired by more, I would say. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. I think we should yeah. hear Best Day of My Life, which is the title track. It's also the first song we're going to look at, and it's the song that opens the album. We're going to hear a blast of the master now, and then we're going to start at the beginning. 
taste of the mastered version of Best Day of My Life by Tom O'Dell. Mm. So um, it's the first song on the album, and I think it's one of the first songs you wrote for the record. Yeah. So I've got a voice note in my phone from June the 1st, 2021, which is where the idea came from. It was at my piano at home, actually. Um, do you want me to play the voice note? Yeah, that would so, be great. So it was originally called Worst Day of My Life. Um, <laughs> so I've got a voice note saved as Worst Day of My Life. And then above it, there's a voice note on the same day, saved as best day of my life. There's an insight into how insane I am. Can't believe I'm playing this. And what, what's the other voice note like then? Recorded the same day but given the best day title. Were they recorded very close to each other? Was there a... Yeah, it's probably an hour or two, yeah. Right. And which came first, best or worst? Worst was first, yeah. Right. And then things got better. Things got better, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a nice cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's interesting with that song of like, if I remember the thought process correctly, it was like actually going with best day felt in a way more tragic than worst day. Worst day just sounded like you're being hyperbolous or, you know, like sort of over the top. Mm. Today's the worst day of my life. It's like, no, it's not. If you say over a piece of melancholic music, I think today is the best day of my life, introduces almost more tragedy, I think, to the situation. And um, I guess the thought is inspired by my own struggles with sort of anxiety and depression. It's, you know, within a single moment, it's possible to feel, well, in an hour, you can feel so down and so low, almost unbelievably so and then an hour later you can feel euphoric and I think it's inspired by that the presence of it as well also I think the lyric is inspired by the thing that I've always been interested in melancholy and I'd say that's the thing that the word that best describes a lot of my music but when I think about the sort of like deepest moments like when I I don't know like I think about my girlfriend like when I really feel like a deep sense of love for her. There's also a sadness to it. Almost like the knowledge that one day she's going to die and one day we won't feel this thing that we're feeling right now. You feel this sort of euphoric sense of the finite and the fact that one day this thing will end. And so it's a tragedy, but it's also total joy. And I think that's what the song 
at the point of conception, that's what it was inspired by. Yeah. And that's interesting because in a way, that's a theme that runs through a lot of the album, isn't it? Mm. So it, that voice note or those two voice notes recorded on the 1st of June 2021, then you know, 20 minutes walk away on the piano you have at home. Mm. Then you came to this room and met up with Laurie. Well, I think it probably was... Or what happened next is in a way. You know, how soon after writing that and recording that on the voice note on your phone did you then share it with Laurie and... Well, um, I think it was about... Four months, probably. Right. And once you'd written something like that, would you just put it to one side and, and move on? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I'm quite, a, I'd say as a writer, like I have a lot of ideas which go in there and then it's choosing the right moment to then commit to one of them and to finish it. And I would say with that song, I probably would have played it to Laurie on the piano. And then we probably would have, you know, tried to understand it better. Yeah. Um, so there's always a point of conception and then which is something you can't control and isn't cerebral, it's just intuitive. And, and then I feel like there's a process of trying to understand the song yourself and then finish it. Yeah. I guess the other question is, so that's on your piano at home mm. and you recorded the actual song on this piano behind you in this studio. Mm. Um, and what's the... The difference. So, what kind of piano have you got at home? Because that's you know a key part of this album is the sound of this yeah. piano. So the big thing with this this piano is um, we discovered basically that you could put this this rug on in between the hammers and the strings, right? And it would produce this. So it's a kind of slightly muted sound, which is it's really interesting because it's the thing that really strikes you when you start listening to the record. It's like you no. Know, it has this quiet intimacy, but it mm. also sounds like you might be listening just outside the door. Yeah. You kind know, of almost, you know, spying mm -hmm. on this intimate moment when you're you're sharing these thoughts. I think that it obviously makes it feel probably a little bit sadder, but also that thing about it feeling removed is interesting because I think across the album, there's two things that make, there's a slight distance and it's the cloth, but also the slight use of, Autotune, which, you know, autotune is funny. You get like, amongst some people, it's like a dirty word, but it's like, we weren't using it to tune vocals. We're using it to create a slight distance, a digital almost effect, which to me gave it the, all the songs, which are very sincere, a slight coldness. And it's funny when you turn that stuff off, the songs- It too much. Be one, yeah. It became too sincere. It became overly, it? yeah. Right. And too earnest. And actually, I think, took away from the honesty of it. And I was fascinated by those two things, which basically just across the whole album is this rug and this auto-tune effect. Very subtle, but it gave this slightly two-dimensional element, this almost digital feeling to the album. The interesting thing about that is you put something in a context that actually creates the tension it's like the in the paintings of like um impressionist painters they would use in grass red to make the green more green yeah you you put something in there which is against mm. the feeling because then it gives you the the it makes you feel that thing more mm. it's the pull that you need the friction yeah without it it becomes as we were saying, it becomes too much in one direction. Mm. It's like the, the tension is what 
was interesting about the yeah. autotune. And I think it's also the tension of that lyric as well, which is totally over the top, almost so over the top, it's sort of anodyne. You know, it's like, I think today is the best day of my life. I actually think what we, well, whether or not I think the song is successful or not, I don't know. But like, I think what we did do successfully is that there's definitely a, that tension you're talking about. There's a darkness to it, which is very difficult to pinpoint. And we did it, we took great care with the lyric. We spent a lot of time on that lyric, right? Yeah. Like over a week, maybe two well, weeks. Yeah. Well, coming back to it over a period of weeks, yeah. And it's this very subtle unravelling of the fact that ultimately it's not the best day of your life. But even that, in a way, can't be too on the nose. It has to be done so delicately. And, you know, this thing of like, I saw a billboard and it said something like, everything will be all right. It's like, so tenuous and uh, two-dimensional again. It's like paper thin. And I don't know, it, it's still, when I say that, like, it touches me because I'm like, it feels like the world we're living in now. Everything is actually overly sincere, but also totally lacking any sincerity like <laughs> or realness. It's like people on TikTok that like kind of, they express their f- feeling sad and they cry into the camera. And... It's really like shocking and abrasive to see, but then you think about that and you think well, you're filming yourself crying is that it's an interesting thing to do when you when you feel overwhelmed by sadness is to film yourself. Mm. I mean, it's fascinating. And I think the lyric about the girlfriend is the first moment in the song. Mm. Uh, I think today's the rest of my life. I have my girlfriend looked worried and asked me why. And like, that's the bit in the song where I hope when people hear it for the first time, they've at that point acknowledge, ah, this is something severely wrong here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. De- well, I think it definitely has that effect. Definitely when I first heard it, I was like, hang on, what's, what's going on here? You know, it does raise a question. Um, how are we going to um, look at how you develop this then? So when you... Yeah, this first... is from the 7th of October. This, right. This one. I have absolutely no idea what we're about to well, listen to. Uh, I bet it's just the... I bet it's just the piano and a, and a vocal. It this will is, be the is, vocal. Mm. I reckon. Yeah, we'll just, yeah. <laughs> probably, probably sound better than the original. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, have you discovered the trick with the blanket? Yeah. Yeah. So you've already made that discovery. There's one note that rings out that escapes it. That one. Which we should talk about, the bar. Yeah, we should talk about yeah, that. Yeah. I think today is the best day of my life. Doctor called me and told me I'm gonna survive. I'm so happy, I'm so happy that I could cry. So it's different lyrics. <laughs> I think today is the best day of my life. Had a coffee and I pulled the there's so many sad times I've had well, I'm so glad They're not gonna happen anymore Gonna happen anymore This, this, this is different <laughs> Anyway but the auto tune isn't yet in place. No, the auto tune. There, there is subtly some auto tune right. in there actually, but no, no uh, Valhalla vintage reverb. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> which is I mean, which love, is a go-to. I'd love to hear the voice without 
the subtlety of oh, your yeah, attitude, yeah, yeah, just sure. because it, from what you're saying, it's incredibly subtle, but yeah. uh, very effective at the same yeah. time. I think today is the best day of my no life. Doctor called me and told me I'm gonna survive. I'm so happy, I'm so happy that I And then can we hear it with Yeah, so I'll play that again with I think today is the best day of my life. Doctor called me yeah. and told me It's I'm more how it hits survive. the note rather than so not so quick the attack on it. It's letting it the note naturally sound and mm, so it hits it slightly after just the setting on it was kind of there were moments where we were just like an auto-tune setting's been changed <laughs> it's like the whole thing that's the thing with you know minimalism so you become obsessed with with incremental minuscule. i mean when i say we i think it's me <laughs> that became obsessed i mean no i mean it's 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 valid though i mean it's true things sometimes for example would have just changed would, or, or mm. if there was like you know a technical problem of which there were some there were many <laughs> that resetting things have reset or my subscription to antares has not renewed not being paid it's not being paid it's like uh, so then uh, all the settings also, have happened to accidentally have reset and then it's just like can we also point out that we were working across two laptops a lot of the time yeah. We'd start a lot of songs on my laptop. That's right. And then you'd take them away in a different... That's right. And it would change settings sometimes. Yeah. So no consistency in, in yeah. equipment. Oh, I mean, my God. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting because, in essence, it couldn't be more simple. It's your voice, Tom. Mm. It's the piano. And yet these subtle, subtle adjustments that you've made have a really, really big impact. And I'm intrigued by what you're saying about the piano as well, that one key... Misses out somehow the muffling. Yeah, it's the, um, it's, it's, and it's how and why that would be the it's case. It's this one that goes uh, D. Yes. And then did you struggle at a point where you thought, oh, we've got to sort that out. We can't have that. Or did it in a way well, highlight in that way that you're talking about with painting grass and adding a bit of red? I think there's the most profound story of the whole album that we need to tell. <laughs> so we had this um, rug, right? And this is insane. We were talking about this yesterday. Oh, we? yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got this yeah. problem that the piano's got these bars right here that holds the hammer. Which isn't that common for upright pianos. That's specific to that model right. of Steinway. And what's it? So it, the bars? So the bars just, there's like four of them which separate all yeah, the hammers. Yeah. So we obviously did this makeshift rug. Mm. And what we found is we couldn't get the rug over the bars. And what it did was... It meant that you get all these like notes doing weird things like that because the, the rug would bunch up. And we spent a long time trying to work out how to do this, right? We, calling we called Steinway, called technicians. Because what you what we tried to get to happen was we tried to get a mute, what's called a yeah. mute rail. You know, like sometimes on practice pianos, you have this practice pedal if, yes. for people yeah. you know, at home and you can put it down and then this mute rail comes down. Essentially, it does that. It's a felt that drops yeah. down in between the hammer and the string. And so that enables you to practice and play more quietly. That was what that was. But we actually yeah. tried to get one made, didn't we? Yeah. And we, well. yeah, we sort of arrange it differently. And it was like, well, no, what's insane is we change keys. We would change keys of piano performances. So, so I'd, I'd do a piano performance that we were going to sing the song in B flat, right? And because of this problem with the bar, we would do the piano performance in G in a different key and then use a, a software called Serato to tune and no and we no, we do it in G. We worked out that each oh, yeah. key is six percent. Is a six percent tempo change. Very speed, yeah. 
So if you play a song in G, right? If you vary speed it up by 6%, the tempo will change by 6%, but the, you find the next semitone up. So you get to A flat, you go up another 6%, get to A, and, you know, and so on, so on. 18% from G to B flat. 18%. So we play, what we worked out is that we would have to implement some very simple mathematics. Yeah. And we'd play songs in different tempos and different keys and then serato them. So Serato's your a kind of DJ tool, isn't it? A lot of DJs Sample, use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We used it quite a lot in the album. And we'd Serato up because of this bar problem. And then after we finished the album, we then realised all you had to do is take some scissors. <laughs> just go like <laughs> cut around it. Which is what's happened now. <laughs> and we did the but whole we did the whole album not realising that we could do that. And we spent the whole four months trying to work out all these like <laughs> elaborate solutions. And the thing I've learned from it is we were too focused on the problem. Yeah. We became blinded by it. But yeah. actually those two bars there had more of an influence on the sound of this album than probably anything else. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, we should, the rug itself looks a bit like the kind of thing, like a packing blanket or something. That's that what it, it yeah, it's right. with the piano. Right, yeah. yeah. The piano movers rug. Because I, I could also see a potential obsession with having the right thickness rug to create the right yeah, effect. Different thickness or, or, of no, felts. Would make uh, yeah. a big difference. Well, we did. Would you remember the rug fell off and then we put it on back in the wrong... The wrong edge. The wrong edge. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> and then you just think you're going insane. Yeah. <laughs> like... yeah. What else do we need to hear from this song? Maybe we should go to the, the main the original s- session. master session. Yeah. So, so, you know, whilst it's just piano and vocal, this album, the reason we did it is I saw a post by Rick Rubin mm. on his Instagram yeah. that was like, and I can't, I actually think I misread the quote, by the way, right. because I've since tried to find the quote and it's not saying the thing. These are I the say. ones on Instagram, his, you know, the ones that disappear after a, a week. Right. They're only there for one week. Oh, a day. Is it a day? It's a day, yeah. Wow. They're only there for a day and then they're gone, which is yeah. very Rick Rubin. He almost basically produced this album. It feels, <laughs> Rick I mean, Rubin. It's like, it just feels like, <laughs> Did you see the Rick Rubin quote? Like you yeah. said, to be we were constantly DM each other Rick Rubin quotes. Yeah, throughout yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, but there was one where he said something about the fragility of a piece of work that if you even if you blow on it wrong, it can fall apart. Mm. So it's like that level of like detail of how fragile the thing is. I think. I mean, he yeah. There was constant wisdom, but the one that inspired the album was which I think I've now think I might have made up or misread. Yeah. I thought it was something along the lines of through arbitrary limitation, the results are limitless or so it was something like that. Like for imposing the imp- imposition of limitation, you put yeah. your limitations in there. Yeah. And you find, you know, limitlessness, but the, that was the initial one we set, shared with each other. And that was part of the inspiration behind putting this, these boundaries. Yeah. So strict rules. You're not allowed to pick up a bass. You're not allowed to pick up the drums. It must just be, this piano and this vocal, and we really did stick to it, didn't we? I think that's unusual, yeah. yeah. It's unusual because I think very often you have an idea for a sonic palette or something like that in a record, and normally it will go, you follow some form of spontaneity in the room at some point, mm. and it's like, oh, what happens if we did just pick up that? And, and you go, oh, that actually sounds really good, and it's like then you follow that, and it leads somewhere great as well. But it informed the songs, how we wrote the songs, because yeah. suddenly the process of removing any possibility of any other instrumentation meant that the piano part, even the, the construction of the song had to be different. For example, on Best Day of My Life, it's like, 
it doesn't really grow very much like in a way of a traditional song might like it remains very linear and so you're having to find a journey elsewhere maybe in the lyric more mm. it or, highlights the mm. where the variation is by yeah. not by keeping something similar it highlights the thing that does change which in this case i think is the lyric mm. but what i will say is Laurie really brought this whole atmospheric presence to the album which i really had very little involvement with of taking parts of the piano taking short parts and using delays and reverb right to create this texture which is all over the album i mean in this song actually there's probably better examples across the album of that atmospheric but things like this I think what that is, it's a reverb send of a vocal and the piano together and printing the reverb, so bipping the reverb and then reversing it and condensing it. So you've got this kind of speech which feels reversed in it. And then on top of that, I think in this case, I've just put an altar boy on it from Sound Toys to create this sort of like glitchy. That was one thing in yeah. that case that created that. Um, in order to look at the song, then you're suggesting that in a way the changes in the lyric help the changes in the song, you know, because you've created quite a linear pattern for it. Because it's always a difficult thing in terms of analysing lyrics. Mm. How much do you want to do that? Mm. I mean, obviously, oh, it's they're, opposite, like... they're very important here. Mm. And, and you're brutally honest in the way that you talk on this record. Probably, you know, when we talk about the other songs as well, it's, it is minimalism. So it's like there's so there's a lot of repetition. So... Mm. There's a lot of repetition of, I think today is the best day of my life. I mean, we keep saying it. I don't know how many times you say it in a song, but it's over and over again. And I guess each time you're trying to subvert the meaning of what that line means. So it's you say the line and it's in this colour. Say the line again, it's in this colour. And I think one of the things that we were talking about in the room as well at the time is that I was, I was actually going out with a girl at the time who was studying writing. And she came back to me and was talking about lists and how the repetition of things, you probably had this idea already, but it sort of ties in with something I remember us talking about and which Dylan uses a lot is like lists where you have something that's repetitive, but then you change the thing that mm. follows, or maybe the answer is the repetition. Mm. And it's like what that does, the repetition of that, how it highlights the, the thing that changes again. It's like that stable thing that stays the same. One of the things we, like, again, in this spirit of minimalism, you change one thing and it radically changes it. One of the things we did with the production is like, in the second verse, you get a double track come in on the vocal, which is not, you know, it's not, you know, anything particularly revolutionary, revolutionary mm -hmm. but it's amazing in this minimal landscape how much it lifts. And then the other thing I'd say that was significant, I mean, we, should we show, should we show? Yeah, it's a triple, uh, triple track, but this is... So it's from here. It's so subtle. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's really boring. <laughs> it's, it's, it's this kind of stuff going on. It's just like pianos 
that kind of comes in there as well. Yeah. And then there's, there's, a, there's a kind of decay going on in that, isn't there? Yes, there, there is, yeah. Oh, so there's some bass there. I mean, some bass. Piano, piano bass. It, but it's all the piano. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this when you isolate those things, it makes it sound as if actually, instead of recording in this room, you've kind of gone underneath... Uh, the streets of London and kind of started to yeah. record it yeah. in, in some of the sewers. <laughs> For that yeah. drippy. Effect. Yeah, yeah. It's probably where we belonged. Um, <laughs> the, um, the last verse, I would say, is a good place to finish on in the sense that you've got this, as you can hear, these elements coming in and it's dreamlike and it's the surrealism of it is, I would say, throughout the song increases and then... The last verse, the lyric is very abrasive. And I mean, we spent a long time fine tuning this lyric. And um, I don't know if you remember, Laurie, but like at this point, there's a suggestion that, like, you know, last night was contemplating sort of dying. And I mean, we spent a long time trying to get the right. Semantic. I mean, we just had to. We felt we had to be really careful with that line, because it was talking about something so delicate. But also, for me, that's a moment in the song where all the reverb and all the all the dream disappears, and you've got this real, very abrasive, stark lyric, which is, "Last night, all I wanted to do was die, but right now I'm happy to be alive." And you know, there's. I could probably find a notebook where there's just like pages and pages of variation on that lyric of I think even at one point it was I think today's best of my life last night all I wanted was suicide or there was definitely like yeah there were a lot of variations and I remember that we were trying to find the right the the right way of expressing what what we wanted to say Mm. uh, at that point in the song yeah well um, and and you try and create the right atmosphere for that sonically so mm. yeah so if you listen to the bit before it which is sort of what we were calling a middle eight you know it's where all the bass and the and everything is full and then it just goes there's lots of sort of backwards things going on there isn't there Last night, all I wanted to do was die. Right now, I'm happy to be alive. Just like that musical history was made. (laughs) It's like, like, that's a huge change (laughs) in production for this record. It's like going from that level of reverb and a little bit of that, and then to like dry, it's like they were the elements in a way that we were operating in. Because in a way, as as we're doing this, I'm I'm realizing it is going to be quite boring, some of the stuff, but like... What's interesting is that I think it actually does live in a space that is quite unique because like the 70s style singer-songwriters, like there was so little attention paid to the technology. Oh, this is my belief of like, it was about the song and it could have been any performance, but this was the first performance and here it is, you know. The spontaneity of it, yeah. Yeah, and it was about, when you listen to like, Harvest by Neil Young it's like it was about the song and the sort of sonic the fidelity of it is like the least important element even though it is beautiful 
But what's interesting about this is that it is very minimal, but we did actually spend a hell of a lot of time on this tiny, tiny detail. You know, it wasn't just a stroke of the brush. It really was uh, quite carefully put yeah. together, I'd say. I think that's fair, isn't it? I mean, some of them were quicker than others. I'd say this one wasn't one of the quick ones, though. No. There's three instrumentals. And because some of the songs you know, have these heavy lyrics mm. and with some of the instrumental passages, they help those resonate, but also calm things down for a moment in a way mm. which makes the listening to it as a whole you know, very pleasant, you know, if for want of a better word. But if you were to just focus on some of the heavy statements yeah. that you're making, then that might take away from it or over overdo it in a way. I think those instrumentals certainly allowed us to be more raw with the words, yeah. Mm. And it lets you, as you said, you put more eloquently than me, you know. It, I think it just lets you digest it, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think it, allow, it allowed for more honesty. Yeah. It, normally in, create, in the process of creating, it's about what you do. It's like, what can we do to make this better? What can we do to... And I think this whole process really was about undoing stuff it's undoing like how to make things simpler and i think the instrumentals allowed actually moments free from narrative free from like vocal just to have a space of of an atmosphere a mood mm. just to exist for a bit it just lets you digest something yeah agreed yeah totally and uh, to aid digestion now we're going to take a little break oh, great. Um, and then we'll be back to look at just another thing we don't talk about <laughs> you may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So the next song we're going to look at from Tom O'Dell's Best Day of My Life is just another thing we don't talk about. I think we'll hear a blast of the Master Lorry and, and then we can start talking about it. Mm -hmm. 
carry on just doing it like that, yeah. taste of just another thing we don't talk about and it's interesting hearing these slightly different elements that are in this song already mm. in comparison to best day of my life and and so already from what you've told us i'm now thinking those parts that i thought were strings you know they're rising in the background mm. are not they're reverb creations by laurie using the piano as the mm. initial yeah. instrument yeah yeah they are absolutely they're sends Actually, most of these things are sends from pianos. Let me just have a listen. We go through each one here. Mm. And was it a case of, you know what, we, it would be great if we could have something else here as well that was doing something. Is it that kind of question? Yeah, I think it's like how to keep interest, where to make variation, and how to make variation, because we wanted to do everything through the piano. Mm. So having sends off of instruments essentially meant we were everything was being derived from the instrument itself yeah would it be a send from the thing that was being played yeah so there'd be a live performance which had yeah. been recorded and then you know creating auxiliary sends basically to reverbs to i would use quite a lot of crystallizing crystallizers which sort of uh putting the the octave on the crystallizer up and you've got this kind of feedback feature so it sends feedback into the crystallizer and it goes up and up and up and continues going up so that's where you get this sort of ethereal mm. atmospheric thing so i would do sometimes reverbs into that or sometimes i do that into a reverb as well um this here is let me just see, this is just a single space note and So these are like actually things that we've that's a performance. We would, yeah, isn't it? we would have played these things in. The thing with this track that was a huge part of the process was that this was a kind of very spontaneous. It was a the take is actually so I, I wrote a song with my friend Max and we started the song, got a lot of the lyric done, and then I chipped away at the lyric for about a month, largely the second verse, and then he came back and then. I think we just did one take of it, and that is what you hear. Right. So it, it's, it was a piano take, and then I did a vocal separately on top. And then I think I triple-trapped the vocals. 
And so you could solo just the piano and the vocal. And this is what would have been, I would have given to Laurie. Okay, I'm just going to carry on just doing that one thing. Yeah. So that thing you hear at the start, you know, I'm just going to carry on doing another take. Yeah. So maybe it was the second take. Yeah. Maybe it was the second take of the piano. And this whole sort of performance is, I think it was just one take. Rain, home again. The whole thing. But you'd already worked for a long time getting those words the way you wanted them. Yeah, to and it's quite similarly to how I'd say a lot of my songs come to, seems to be the process, is there seems to be an initial idea, initial spark, where often the title and the chorus and even like the skeleton of the song, the feeling of the song I will capture and then there's this other process where we're trying to put all that into a place. We're just trying to finish it essentially, trying to get it over the line and often that can be many months apart and I've I've actually had a lot of songs which are years apart, like the initial idea comes from maybe three or four years before and there's an understanding about what the song is at this point, you know. I mean, there's a song on this album, Smiling All The Way Back Home. Oh, yeah, I think you did with Rick. Yeah, that's a a title and a melody I'd had for four years or something, three years. And it was just like, when we were coming to the end of recording this album, there was an understanding of what that song could be. And then me and Laurie write a sort of lyric to it. But it's quite slow, you know, like I would say that, you know, this sort of culture in London of all these singer-songwriters going around various producers and they write one song in one day and I'd say that's probably 80% of the songs you hear on New Music Fridays I would say I'm the complete opposite of that it's much longer process and it's definitely more of like you know chipping away mm. at it and sometimes like there's a song I played yesterday that one that starts with the Jesus Christ yeah that you know that's something I've been Working on chipping away at for like two or three months and just like what I don't like and maybe because I've experienced this is you can lose the passion for a song you can suffocate it and by forcing crowbarring in a story that isn't right it has to feel like the lyrics belong there and you can sometimes get obsessed you know that song we wrote for this album When I Close My Eyes which was about bereavement we spent weeks writing this fucking song and going in on the story, you know, and we ended up, it was a beautiful, when I close my eyes, I see them in front of me. It's beautiful, it's a lyric and a beautiful sentiment, idea. I thought the melody was really beautiful. But we just, you just, we forced it and you lose it. And then, you know, we record it and... It wasn't alive. Really. It wasn't alive. It's, it's got to have that mystery. Songs have got to have that mystique to them. You can never totally say 100%. You can never quite grab it. Like, that's the thing I've I've learned from mm. songwriting. Yeah. I mean, something I would add potentially about the process of this song specifically that's different mm. to the others, perhaps, is that towards the end, because in these atmospheres here, mm. you have actually rhythmic parts in them. Now, these rhythmic parts were sort of played, Tom, I think you played them on top 
yeah. of the piano. But because you've got one original piano performance and then you've got another original piano performance, what happens a lot actually in the records we're doing at the moment as well is that because performance is such a big part of these records, like one takes or that when you layer performances on top of each other, it can become very messy. Yeah. It can become very messy very easily, like especially at the moment we're doing something which has drums and stuff and it's like, it's been a real... So it's a real... What the labour actually in this track, which in this track more than any of the others, was how to find an organic pocket, you know, like a pocket in where it sits, where those atmospheres, the rhythm of those atmospheres sit in relation to the rhythm of the piano and the rhythm of his vocal. That took days of like, if you look at how many chops there are in that, it's like crossfades and chops on these things there is like nudging things by like, I don't know, I move things in samples, so like 10 or 100 samples. Do you know how many other the nudges that I use? There was, there was a lot of, like we call it cleaning, don't we? Like there was a lot of that that would go on for, I remember there was definitely, we had a big argument on this song. Yeah, yeah we did, yeah. Towards the end of the process when so around the second verse because it's just this one take we're using Mm. you know it's very loose and it was around the second verse it sort of falls apart doesn't it or it did it did it sort of actually it it just lost its way because it's all a bit loose but it got a bit too loose yeah and you were trying to convince me to put that kick drum on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was like, we should just have one kick drum in the in the record, like one. And then we we just reached this point of. But like, it did work though. Music did. No, it, it, it did work. Still arguing for the kick drum. <laughs> Can we illustrate it? Even just to hear the the looseness of the performance there. Yeah. So um, here, if you, I mean, right now this is a sort of a tightened version, but certainly this interplay between organic performance and like quantization like those are the two extremes and it's finding where that balance what you could show is is from an earlier version yeah i mean because it you've this is clean so this is do you want to hear a a, do you want to hear a messy yeah yeah Yeah, please this is the one with the kick drum let's just hear what we broke the rule momentarily right Do you hear how that slips out there against the kick? I mean, if you listen to my ears, like, that pocket is not acceptable. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, whoa. But I, at the same time, you don't want to just quantize it. Keep the piano's coming forward against the kick a lot. So we had that for a bit. We had that kick drum in for a bit. I mean, it wasn't in for very long. It was in for a couple of days. No, it was longer than that. Was it? Yeah, yeah. And w- it just longer. out of curiosity, how did the kick drum then stay with the song for the rest of the song? Or did you... Yeah, it's still till the end. Right. Yeah. Could, one of the things, if you could have introduced a kick drum, it's like, what do you do with it now? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And if it was just to disguise... <laughs> mm. a bit of sloppiness um, that's what it, it was being used for right yes that's yeah, the, yeah. That, and that's what the argument was mm. about yeah yeah it yeah. was it was i remember being like we're using this kick drum to mask the fact that yeah. the thing falls apart at this point and what laurie then very stubbornly st- no studiously i was well, studiously say, but, but you resentfully then, you resent <laughs> you acquiesce in the task of then fixing the problem that you didn't want to fix yeah which was incredibly difficult and i think you know, I mean, it was just subtly 
tightening yeah. things up in that version. It was mainly, also I seem to remember, my double track on the vocal yeah. or my triple track, whatever it was, which is just subtly just supporting the lead was also very messy. I seem to remember, didn't we do a few of those again? Most likely. We did a few of those again. Yeah. It's always this balance between, you know, when you spend a lot of time in a room like this, what you care about begins to change. So when you first write the song and you first record it, you hear it coming off the speakers for the first time. And if it's good, you just feel euphoric. You're like, this is insane. You know, this is going to change the fucking world. You know, uh, <laughs> And, you know, that slowly comes down as you realise you're a mere mortal and it's just another song that will, you know, eventually be one of the other million songs that's out in the world. But anyway, as you go through that process, your ears begin to hear mistakes. And, of course, there are things in the process from that first recording to when it comes out. There are things you, you should look at and there are things that can make it better. For example... You know, the normal process is you send the song to a, a mix engineer, you know, and a mix engineer, it will put it through a series of compression, limiting, EQ, and he'll present, make it more presentable. But what's so hard, you know, and I think that's what we're talking about here, is there's this sort of process of finding the best way to present this to the world, is if you iron out too many mistakes you begin to lose the essence of the work. And if you leave too many mistakes in, it can also distract from the essence of the work. And I think finding that balance was so much the process with all the songs on the record is trying to understand how... What to clean and what not to clean. Exactly, yeah. And I think actually, with a lot of them, I think we got it right. Yeah. I feel good about it. The good thing about this kick drum, right? Just because I'm going to keep going with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, is that the, when we had to take it out, it highlighted what was going wrong. Is right about that, definitely. But the energy of it going forward, it actually, yeah, we realised that that was a good positive energy. So we tried to keep that, but just within the piano parts. Yeah. Right. But did that mean you had to re-record which you didn't do no, so how do you know because what did you do to keep that he energy? just he just thought about it he I just thought that it's oh that's an energy that we should uh listen to this with, no, i spent, with, with spent two days like <laughs> chopping things to yeah, be to, to, yeah. to start to like feel like when things belong together rhythmically when they have that rhythmical relationship when the energy of that works it has its own momentum yeah you so know. so you're saying you edited some of the piano just to tighten things up. Massive, uh, yeah. yeah. That, can you kind of quickly illustrate that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I just... We highlight, I guess we tried to that highlight must have been it. super subtle editing in the... Oh, yeah. You know, the gaps between yeah. the notes are not very big. So, you, yeah. And yeah. To, without ruining the, <laughs> the tune. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting thing, though, because the two of you are piano players. Yeah. You know, to a very high level. And so, you know, another thing that must be in your minds is that well, we could replay this and maybe mm. we could replay this better. But and we, obviously then you could go on forever trying yeah. to do that. And we did that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to talk more broadly, I would say, you know, like I've played the piano since I was a kid. Laurie studied the piano in a very, very deep way. You know, and he's an old man, unlike me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Age. <laughs> so he's got, but no, but Laurie studied music in a way that very few people in the world have. Mm. And his understanding of music is deep, very deep. And it's an absolute honour 
to be able to make music with him. I think that what it's done to my piano playing as well is massively influenced this, you know, how I think about the piano and how how I play it. And, and I think that precision and that attention to detail is, you know, massively influenced the, the parts on this album. I think, though, interestingly, this album... We reached that sweet spot, though, where you also respect the the way I play as well. Absolutely. And so there was a sort of, not to put words in your mouth, but I think there was a sort of sweet spot of mutual understanding. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm not, like, in classical terms, like, I'm a rubbish piano player, but that's not to say that I can't express myself with the instrument. And I think it's just an interesting push and pull, that, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, to go back to the editing thing, I think it's interesting again that you know two very accomplished pianists you know, don't yeah, just re-record it. Yeah, yeah or but the, the editing is another skill. But also, mm. it's probably very informed yes. by your knowledge of how to play the piano. That's, that's the thing. Mm. Yeah, that's that's it. Editing is often just like, oh, clean it up, mm. get someone else to do. You know, that's the kind of that's my attitude towards it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's. It's just been a discovery, actually, of how to maintain something that feels organic and has a spontaneity in it, has its own life, its own performance, its own, and albeit having to change things very subtly within that, but not to a point where suddenly it feels manipulated. Yeah. So it's like, it's invisible. It's like invisible editing is the way I would yeah. try. I'm just, I'm just hoping that you'll be able to make this invisibility visible uh, <laughs> by playing a little section yeah. of what you've done. I, I mean, yeah. obviously, that's probably impossible. It's very, it's very difficult to do that, I yeah. think. If I just turn this track up, you can hear. Shall we have a Should I tell Keep this but you know, Laurie, there was also problems with the main main take as well. The main piano performance, had, yeah. they all had to be... Because these were all uh, played things, organic mm. things, and when you put them all on top of each other, it was just like yeah. chaos. So that, that was quite a detailed part of the process, was how, yeah. how to line everything up and get those all these parts this could be the time we work things out we could say some things that we should say out loud and then from there they're going to this just so you can see where these atmospheres go they go to a bus here which again has got like an altar boy on it and then I think this will probably be an effects rack the setting is giant metal cube, but it's not actually. I would have changed that a little bit. There's the crystallizer. In this case, I'm taking the crystallizer down an octave. Uh, no, sorry, down 12 cents. So just detuning it slightly and reversing it. Um, but there's not very much recycle. This is the recycle thing I was talking about when you send it into the crystallizer. It feeds back on itself. So I used a lot of the atmospheres were created through that and reverbs. Yeah. This could be 
Yeah, so all those piano parts that were edited were then sent to that bus. You should solo the BVs as well. There's quite a few BVs on there, right? Yeah. Oh dear. Dry. Just another thing that we don't talk about. Just another thing that we don't talk about. How many different voices on that? Not many, like six. Six, yeah. yeah. It's, it's great because it really, I'm now envisaging, you know, six toms because that on its own really conjures up that Neil Young kind of yeah. harvest. Springsteen, type thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the thing I was right. massively. Using BVs is something that is very habitual to me. Like, I've always loved it or across all my work. I mean, there's often loads of voices. But I think there was actually, on this record, there's actually not as much as there's. Well, it was much less than the previous record and much less, you know, use of it. It was just careful use of it. But. Yeah, and it's not on every song, is it? It's no. On some songs, so everything has... Know a certain place and to yeah. have a certain effect. Do you have a particular microphone you like to use or a well, particular this, vocal uh, setup? So this is actually significant. So we started using these when we were recording Monsters. It's a Sony C800. It's an iconic microphone, and I got that one. I got it shipped from Australia from some bloke in Australia. I bought it from. Is it rare then? Is it hard to get hold of? Relatively, yeah. yeah. They stopped making them for a while, didn't they? Yeah, well, I think they've started manufacturing them again, but. They were very hard to get hold of when you bought it, I think. Yeah, I think I might have been ripped off slightly. But the the um it was definitely like a, it's definitely like a hip hop like thing. It's definitely like Dre, isn't it like into the Avalon or something? I know like Rihanna and Bieber use it. It's a pop it's definitely a pop thing as well. But also Often going into a Neve and to into the it's not there at the moment, but the C L one B yeah compressor. That was our chain, so ten seventy three into the C L one B compressor. It adds a lot of brightness to the voice without having to add any fake brightness. So right. it's very sensitive microphone and the album would have sounded very different without it. And I would say also the two coals on the piano, they have a hell of a lot of character, these microphones. And, you know, the piano sounds very unique with those coals. And we did a lot of... Exp I remember when we first started... Tried we, quite a lot of different mics. We did like the of back of the piano as well with like yeah. Neumanns and stuff. But we but. didn't use any of that, did we? So it's definitely that, you know, really the whole record is the two coals on the piano and the C800 for the vocal. Yeah. But also none of the tracks were tracked with the piano vocal at the same time. Right. Um, and yet when we listen to it, you know, this is how you we feel, imagine you, it. You feel yeah. like it yeah. is, yeah. yeah. Um, Do you ever record like that or would you? Or Yeah, yeah, lots. Yeah, yeah it's just a bleed thing. Mm. because you want to be able to compress both and be able to manipulate them separately. Yeah. Treat them separately. Yeah. yeah, you're kind of limiting yourself if you're going to record the two yeah. tracks at the same time. I remember asking Elton that, because I'm obsessed with Elton, and then miraculously managed to become his friend. And I remember I always like ask him so many questions because I'm such a big fan of his records. And the shocking thing to me was that he never recorded vocal and piano at the same time. Wow. But it was always separate. Right. Because you just presume those records, yeah. they just have this mm. feeling of him playing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do also like recording piano and vocal at the same time, though. It is also a, a unique thing as well because you get a spot, you get a relationship between the voice and the piano. We were doing which, something yesterday, actually, that was done like that. Yeah. Which is almost like you can never quite 
replicate that relationship. But I think it's also a skill to be able to play the piano as if you're singing. How do you do that? How do you create that feeling inside yourself that you are singing as if you were playing the piano? Is it just because you do it so much that it just is second nature? Or Yeah, I would say it's difficult for me to talk about because I've been doing it for so long mm. now and I've, I really so rarely will also just play the piano without singing and so rarely will I sing without playing the piano. So the two are so, so married. Um so much of the writing process. Writing and, and singing and playing. Singing and yeah. playing. And it's only really when you're then trying to capture the tape that you separate it. But yeah, I think having made that record, I'm quite up for trying that on the next record of just like a bit more singing and playing at the same time. I think so much of music, like from what I'm learning or I've learned, is that it is the spontaneity, it's the mystique of the relationship between all the parts that really creates... It's so out of your control in a way. And that's the beauty, I think, of music is that no matter how much you try to command it and control it, you're still at the mercy of something larger than yourself, which is and it's why, you know, ensembles and making music with other people, you immediately have a spontaneity because you can never actually predict what that other person's going to do. And it's about how, what you're doing with that other person that creates this totally magical mystical thing that is music you know ultimately and i think music becomes very soulless when you try to remove those spontaneities and it, i guess it's in line with what we we're saying a moment ago it's like you remove too much mess and you you remove it all really yeah you'd lose the magic yeah and the humanity yeah of it all which is obviously so vital it what? becomes so important because yeah. of that humanity it's interesting that because I think that's what happened in my mind to like, I felt like pop music was like when the dominant pop music was like EDM and that kind of stuff. And it was like all on a grid. It was becoming very soulless. And I think what streaming has done to music and it's broadened what, you know, you've now got like, you know, like Billie Eilish and I was listening to that new Girl in Red tunes. And all, of, you know, also all the, Taylor stuff and I was listening to Norman fucking Rockwell over the weekend my girlfriend loads we listened to it like three times like this is pop music it's it's back it's got its spontaneity back it's like people are doing brave things that they respect that spontaneity again I think yeah maybe that's, I'm, that's an interesting point I mean it could be interconnected to the the kind of oversharing we've got via TikTok and Instagram this idea that we're getting a kind of straight into people's everyday existence and that people don't want everything on a grid because they're used to people either real crying or fake crying, whatever yeah. it is. No. I think as we so much of what we consume is two-dimensional, we do seem to become obsessed. We have become obsessed with authenticity. I think it's interesting. Not obsessed, but more interested in it. There's so much art and content on offer. I think the sort of bullshit detector of like when it's insincere, people really pick up on that. And... Also, I'd, I think it would be a miss of us not to point out that this album is massively inspired by loads of new music and contemporary music. And as much as it is minimalism, I've, you know, sort of older minimalism, I'd say, massively inspired by just being brave. I, I'm going on here, but like the real moment for me that was like the break of that is when we did Sad Anymore and Laurie was playing the piano, this part you'd come up with. And then... It was definitely this moment of like, just say the thing. 
I was just like said, the first thing we did actually. Yeah. It? So I don't want to be sad anymore. It's just repeated it over and over again. And it felt very like raw, but it was like, it's wonderful. I feel like that was the sort of spark of the whole album is just like, we really didn't want to put anything on the album that didn't feel real. Mm. That didn't feel like it had that thing that like, you know, we were interested as much in things that make you feel like, uncomfortable, weren't we? Like on giving a fuck and stuff like that. Like there's that line on giving a fuck that's like people telling me I'm not enough. People saying my music sucks. It used to hurt me so much. I don't give a fuck anymore. It's like pretty abrasive that. And it's abrasive for me because it's like, it's real. Mm. It's like, I do care. It's uncomfortable to say it almost. It's, it's uncomfortable to say it. Yeah. And it's like, there's a lot of that on this album. We were searching for that discomfort. And I think people like, we talk about a lot, but like Phoebe Bridges and, and Lana Del Rey, like they're really good at that. Like saying the thing that feels like it slightly turns your head, you know? There's a line on the Norman fucking Rockwell, the first line, it's like, man, child, you fucked me so hard, I almost said I love you or something. It's like the first line of the album, you're like... <laughs> it's it's so good that stuff and it and it it's beautiful it's beautiful because it's real they turn your head because they say the thing that everyone else was afraid to say and i've always i have always tried to do that with my earlier work as well yeah well you're certainly putting it out there on this record we should take another break and mm. we're going to look at flying next the next song we're going to look at is flying from best day of my life so laurie can you oblige us with the master again yeah It's always interesting in these conversations how you learn things about artists as you talk to them. And we've already learned a lot about how you approach this record and, and how, say, here, even now just hearing a little bit of flying, we can see that some of the elements that you've talked about before already, you know, the, the mention of lists and the way of trying to change lines and, and also the repetition and the hypnotic aspects of using the piano are all evident already in mm. flying. But I understand that in a way, to help create the atmosphere and the environment for what you were recording, you used other tools. So some people might set up lights in a certain mm. way, but you were also using other kind of visual cues or, or mm. inspirations or, or things to work against. Yeah, we were, we used YouTube. <laughs> I don't know at what point in the process, quite early on, wasn't it? We would stick on like hour long YouTube things, kind of like there's like study playlists that people use where they right. st just stick on like and it's a looped animation that's where it started I think and then somehow 
like your son is very into Studio Ghibli, isn't he? Anime, yeah. Anime. So we we were watching anime. Yeah, Ghibli. I knew a bit about Ghibli. I didn't know that much, and then started watching some of the films, and then we stuck it on. And there was this one HBO on the HBO channel. It was called like an hour of relaxing visuals or something. Yeah. Um. We were really taken by that. Does it have a soundtrack? So no. You, you you would just have. Oh, we'd this, mute we it. We would mute yeah. the sounds. Yeah. 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 So you would mute it, and it would be there. And it, but these these were chosen. I'm getting the impression because they created the right kind of mood or right kind of feel. So you weren't watching images that were jarring or or, or too exciting. It would be things that corresponded to the music that you're working on. Definitely. And I think, you know, anyone that's heard the album will understand there's a sort of dream-like mm. quality, even the way the songs blend into each other. But the well, whole... Maybe even flying. I'm just thinking about the Studio Ghibli thing. In Studio Ghibli films, they're, they're always flying somewhere, yeah. mm. be it on a magic carpet or on a really strange kind of yeah. steampunk creation of yeah, aircraft. Yeah. They're... In fact, that thing you're referring to in the Ghibli is one of the images we were writing to, that big flying steam ship yeah well, it's like a boat flying boats yeah it? but it's interesting how you need to create these environments in order to help achieve your goals in a way yeah i i think as well like as we began to watch these clips i also understood that i wanted to try and animate the album and so so that conversation was sparked quite early on in the process and i found this amazing animator called mansion low or not animated, she's an artist. And I got in contact with her probably, you know, like two thirds of the way through the album. And that relationship began before, you know, most of the time you make an album, you finish it, you master it, and then you're like, oh, what are we gonna do for the for the videos? And this wasn't the way with this album. It was very much like the process began much earlier on. And we, I don't know, she was just really inspiring. And I definitely feel like it pointed us in the right direction about what we were trying to do. It was this, mm. it was this alternative reality we wanted to make a place where, you know, I think so much of music these days is like we're inundated with content from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. It constantly, everyone's demanding your attention to look at their content and the content that people are making is trying to cram as much information in as short as possible thing. And if you look at like TikTok and stuff, it's like people speak at like a million miles an hour. And and I think that's had an effect on music and music is the songs have become shorter and like so much is delivered in such a short space of time, so many hooks, so many words. And I feel like this album is definitely like we were trying to, it was a response to that feeling. I mean, I'd read a book just before before we started making it called How to Do Nothing by a woman called Jenny O'Dell. She has the same surname as me. <laughs> uh, she's a Californian writer. And it was about the um, attention economy and uh, how to, I mean, she says in the book that, you know, the most anarchistic, the most punk thing you can do today is just delete your Instagram account. Just delete your all your accounts and, you know, because it's like we're sort of propping up this billion dollar industry of just people trying to advertise you shit and sell you shit. And I feel like this album, we, 
I know you, Laurie and I, we had a lot of conversations about wanting to create something with space and wanting to create something that was meditative. I've had a lot of experience with, I've been med- doing transcendental meditation for six years. Laurie's done a lot of, you know, meditation and you know, adventures into that world. But uh, I know that from what I remember, I would be right in saying that was a big inspiration in trying to make something that felt meditative and that was a world people could sit in rather than it invade their world and demand their attention. Mm. People come to it rather than needing to grab. Yeah, I mean, it definitely works like that. Mm. Um, Going back to flying, you know, how did this song come about? What, What do you want to tell us and show us from flying? Did it start with a voice note? So it it started with, this was one of the ones where it wasn't an old idea. This came about with me and Laurie. We were in the room, weren't we? We were probably recording something else, like two thirds of the way through the album recording process. I remember us talking quite a lot about, at certain point, we were talking about piano parts quite a lot. And there was, I remember sort of playing, do you remember I'd bring in sort of different pattern preludes from Mm. like Bach? Preludes mm. and fugues, looking at different patterns of like some of Bach's music and how he keeps a pattern but changes the harmony within that rhythmical pattern. That kind of conversation, li- listening to some of that music and playing some of that music in the room, and this kind of piano part here is is a sort of pattern is being influenced, I think, by that. This is um. Uh- on the 4th of November 2021 play it on a harpsichord (laughs) sounds like it Exactly the same. So that's just in here. Yeah. But, but why would you be recording it on your phone and not running it through? Because I didn't have any uh, lyric or. I mean, I think right, I'm seeing yeah. a different lyric. I think it's right now I'm smiling. Yeah, I was just jamming at that point. Yeah, just jamming. I mean, that's probably yeah. a melodic idea, and the song hadn't been finished. This is the first port of call, I would say, almost always, isn't it? Yeah, we record everything. The, f- the phone. Yeah. So uh, we, did, we didn't have it flying at this point. Yeah. So it was, just, it was a melody first. Yeah, but just, it just got harmony that's out of the way. <laughs> so I think there was an exploration of exploring this sort of slightly chaotic energy like breaking out of this. And I think that's where the Studio Ghibli stuff was actually a real yardstick for us, is that it was like, when that would come on, we'd see actually that this can't exist in this world. Right. It was like a measure. Yeah. A visual measure. And so actually it was like bringing, trying to hone this back into this energy that wouldn't disturb. Yeah. So then, then like a lot of things, I think it's, 
often me and Laurie, there will be like five different versions. Sometimes more. Way more than five versions. <laughs> but there'll be like multiple versions of the song. You know, the first one will try it in a certain way and then we'll sort of move away from it and then come back to it and move away. Trying different keys, different tempos, different, as Laura is saying. So we, so I, I remember feeling when, I think we'd written the lyric by this point or most of it. And I remember talking, I was banging on a lot about Beach Boys. I was really excited by this sort of like, sort of that chaotic energy, sugary joy, but that has this sadness to it still. And we were trying with this cloth off the piano, really quite, it was quite full on. We should just play it. I think this has different lyrics as well in the verses. And I'm coming home, London in the rain, driving kind of slow in the fast lane. Feeling kind of stressed, trying to get drunk. Problem with the rich kids is that there ain't no fun right now. I'm flying, so come and take a shot at me. I just remember thinking a lot about like pet sounds and it having this kind of childlike joy, you know? Yeah. yeah. But I'm. You mentioned Ghibli taking us away from that. I think we also just, I think it also just didn't really work, did it? It just sounded a bit shit. <laughs> well, it sounds like it could be another record in a way. It's taking you in a different direction, yeah. particularly the last bit. Yeah. Um, let's work our way through flying now yeah. and, and how you recorded it. So I think we put the cloth back on. Right. That was probably... After messing around. So if you play the piano, it's a very different sound. Kind of... Yeah, and on that there's like a this pull tech thing which we used a lot this piano punch and presence and then just sort of modified that it kind of gave us this sort of warmth and depth the UAD plugin that we use quite a lot then I'm normally sort of reining that back in a little bit on a multi-band just because it goes a little bit yeah 200 hertz take all that off see how it sounds Exactly the same. <laughs> a little bit less rich. Yeah, it's not. It's not the same. Too. Yeah, it's quite different. It's not as good. <laughs> no, it's. I think the. Um, but also, before you even get to those plugins, it's obviously very different part. energy. Yeah, the performance is totally different. Yeah, and yeah. very non-expressed. So it's remaining the same. Yeah. Would you be able to build us up through the parts? Through the song. Yeah. So the other thing that we put on there was this hiss from the... From the aircon in Aircon. Can you hear that? Yeah. No, but is that on other songs as well? Well, it was on other songs. With that inadvertently. <laughs> Not yeah. on purpose. Mm. And then when it was off, we would then be like, where's... Where's the aircon? <laughs> where's the aircon? So then yeah. on this, I think we actually recorded the fucking aircon. Right, yeah. It was pretty that, quiet in the mix. It's yeah. just like something there. I think the main thing that we did on this, which was done on some of the other instrumentals, was actually taking the piano, this piano part, this melody, I took that and detuned it in a sampler. So the whole thing's been slowed down, detuned down an octave, and displaced it. So you've actually got 
if you listen to these two. And that's used on some of the instrumentals as well, that same technique, yeah. which is this sort of serato detune and Ser triggering. Serato has a heavy, like we used serato a lot, didn't we? Yeah. Maybe you could build up the track from that piano. The main piano. So maybe take, you could take those pianos out, the top ones, to hear what it's like without it. That's just main piano. Right. And then this is with the serato piano. So you get this like offbeat. Super subtle. <laughs> yeah. And then there's just these sort of movements. Yeah. Similar to the process we described. Yeah. Bass. We spent a long time on those bases, do you remember? Yeah. Charlie, the, the funny thing is, is that you we look at it now and it's just like one <laughs> so, piano. It took keep, so long. I keep thinking, thing. oh my god, this is gonna be such a boring episode. Because I'm like, not because of anything. I just because there's so little. It's so. Uh, but in, at, at the same time, and you're creating a lot of different things just with one instrument. Yeah. And obviously some plugins and and some imagination. Yeah. Uh, but you know that these do have important effects as you go through the song. I mean, if we carry on, mm. there's a bit. Um, I mean, it's more vocal, but um, you've got some backing vocals, and then there's a kind of a a soaring voice as well that is in a different kind of style. Yes. It's funny because it's the same. I, I just, I try and think back to that time and get occasional glimpses of, you know, there's this sort of like, this thing about feeling like you are somewhere, but that that you're not there. And I think that's so much of what I feel like we were trying to express with the song is like, you're sort of at a party or something and, you know, everybody's dancing, drunk, and you want to, be there with them but you can't it's this it's again this sort of removal this it's almost like there's a numbness to the whole performance there's a lack of expression which we talked about a lot with the piano part there's a sort of a neutrality to it yeah yeah serenity serenity and even in the vocal it's so disarming and i i also remember like the vocal feels kind of like kind of drunk slightly as well when you listen to the Alone in the rain Driving real slow In the fast lane Feeling kind of stressed But is it a, a numbness Or is it being disconnected Or is it more resilient? It's kind of somewhere in between Yeah But you see it's like so slurry So cold and take a shot at me Not scared of it's kind of drunk and high and it's kind of like that that feeling you have you know when you're kind of there's a resignation to it of like you've reached such despair that nobody can touch you now no one can hurt you that feeling perhaps if you've you know if you're sort of high or drunk or whatever or you know whatever you do for fun 
if it's laureates explore some crystallizers um <laughs> <laughs> the um but no that feeling of like being just not caring mm. and that nihilism i guess in a way i don't know if you agree but that's the feeling that i feel like we were trying to explore i mean in a way you could see that as a as a kind of uh, strength or uh, something that you know where people are oblivious to outside influence and that they're, they're strong enough to resist it you, you talk about you can take a shot at me or but I, I see that you're saying it's that they're separate or detached from what's going on around them i think they're detached mm. yeah in that way that a sort of I'm, i remember like my girlfriend was watching a lot of euphoria like at the time and like you know this sort of you know this sort of feeling there's a lot of sort of slow-mo shots in there kind of high numb feelings of just almost like the the arrogance of of being in in a state like that where you're just sort of like you're detached you don't care anymore it's like i don't know that's what it feels like this track to me feels like slow-mo like it feels like you're the world is moving at a speed that you aren't yeah. and and the sort of wonderful nihilistic pleasure of tuning out of all the things that the world wants you to care about mm. it's, it's interesting that sort of the piano has this sort of repetition in it which is almost like daily life you know this never stops mm. it's like this tempo mm. but the the song and the atmospherics and the, the vocal has this sort of different tempo in it it has this tempo that is this more sort of like in separation to that yeah it, for me, musically, it's expressed yeah. in that way. Almost like it's floating above it. Yeah. You know, hence you're flying. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. 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 We are going to run out of time if we, if yeah, we don't yeah, yeah. Um, round things up. So, I mean, we always ask everybody a couple of questions who come on the Tape Most podcast. One of them is a tech question. Is there a piece of equipment or technology that you uh, are particularly attached to or is particularly relevant to this record? Well, you go first, Laurie. I think I did really get into Serato. Man, you were like... You I were, love Serato. Um, you, if that, you could go to bed with Serato... I probably would have done. You probably would, probably have, done, would have done. Yeah. <laughs> I do go to bed with Serato every night. I sit there in bed sampling. I hope it would, it would be it, it would be funny if it wasn't true. But it is actually true. <laughs> um, I think actually the auto-tune and, and the, the way to create atmospheres through reverbs, I'd say those two mm. things, the, or the way the auto-tune was used was pretty significant as well. Yeah. So maybe if I could have two, I'd say the Serato and maybe the Antares. Yeah. I mean, it, definitely two. the way you've been using it, it sounds as if you went over to Poland and recorded an orchestra yeah. and and kind of balanced them the way you wanted it in the mix. You no, know, Because yeah. that ha has that kind of effect. But yeah, orchestral. But, yeah. but you've done it all yourself in this room. You know? but I, I think... You know, the album would sound so different if it were not for those atmospherics, mm. those reverbs and delays. Yeah. It'd be a completely different record. I almost think it's as much a part of it as the, the piano is. Yeah. Um, and and do you have a piece of tech that you, I mean, you pointed uh, immediately, you pointed at the, the Sony C800. Yeah, I mean... It's just not a lot of tech in this record. There's <laughs> not a lot of tech, <laughs> That's no. the bottom line. No, yeah. but it's all quite, it's still important though, isn't yeah. it? It's still important. You know, I, I'm going to be a bit glib and annoying and say the piano. Yeah. Do you know what particular make this is? It's a Steinway, and right. I, I got it at a piano auction in 2015 at Conway Hall in Holborn. And it sat in my studio at home, and I barely ever played it. 
up until it's too loud for your room, it was, wasn't it? It's um, too loud. Too yeah, so it's quite it's quite a small room. Mm. And then um, when I moved it here, it just took on a whole new lease of life, and the, you know, it's become my favorite piano. And I just think without that piano sounding like it does in this room, this whole record never would have happened because I think it was the it was sticking those coals up with that rug and playing it on the speakers and going, fuck, that sounds cool. Like that's, it's so rich. It sounds so unique. Apart from on Smiling All The Way Back Home, when we took the rug off on the last track of the album to, you know, it's a positive song, take the rug off. It feels like the, the weights come off the shoulders. I'd say like, there's no point in the album where ever playing loud. It's all playing incredibly quietly, which is not something that's, second nature to me like I play loudly probably too much and I'd say that playing that piano quietly with that rug with the gain up on the coals and all that what's the uh, is it API the compressor I'm naming about 15 things there's a lot there's a lot, there's a lot of things. <laughs> there is the, beyond the piano but in the essence but that, the chain is that chain yeah it's interesting is though yeah. yeah on top of that we always ask people whether they have any advice that they'd like to pass on or whether they have received any advice. Mm. I mean, you've already mentioned the wisdom that Rick Rubin shares yeah. uh, via Instagram posts, mm. which seemed pretty cosmic in a way. Or maybe there's something beyond Rick. Maybe there's some other advice that you've you picked up along the way because you've both got quite a lot of experience now. No. Yeah. <laughs> you first. <laughs> I'm certainly not someone that should be divvying out advice to people. <laughs> I'm in no position <laughs> to... Uh... I don't know. I think the album's about self-knowledge. It's about coming to terms with yourself, isn't yeah, it? that's true. I think you're right. About I that. don't know. Why don't I just give the misquote? The misquote. That Rick Rubin probably didn't say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, f- well, apply limitation. Yeah. Limitation. For, I think any art, it's something that I've learned is great. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about it earlier, I wrote it down and it said, applied limitation can create limitless possibilities. Yeah. Mm. It was along those lines. Lot, yeah. I like that quote. You should, I mean, I, I should do your own. I think we're making should, should do your own. perhaps more profound quotes even than Rick. Well, because <laughs> I've, well, I've tried to look for this quote because I keep bloody misquoting it. it. And yeah. actually, he says the opposite. He said, honestly, I looked, I went through like, brainy quote or whatever trying to find this quote from rick and it's like actually don't apply a limitation to your work that's what he says do you not think he might change his advice maybe as he thinks different thoughts i don't know in the same way that say brian eno and and his the various strategies he has often seem to be contradictory Mm. but Mm. no it's important to explore Mm. all the options in Mm. some ways I don't know. Laurie, yeah. do you have any well, particular advice I suppose... you pass on? I mean, you're, you're a very learned chap. You know, he's <laughs> no, I'm really not. But you've studied, not a a lot, you know, you've studied hard at this music business. He's, he's very well educated. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> yeah. I suppose the thing I learned probably a lot, well, not in one quote specifically, but I learned a lot from a guy called Peter Brook, who is a director and uh, died not that long ago, a few months ago. And I worked with him on his last play when he was like 96. And his sort of perseverance with never being afraid to evaluate and re-question and to remove things. 
remove things that are not essential and to be brave enough to do that, you know, right, right up until the last minute, you know, he would just take something huge out of his play. It could be a scene, it could be a whole piece of text, it could be changing a piece of music. But what it does is that it, it keeps something alive. It keeps the thing changing, you know? It's like breathing still. It's not setting something and going, there we are. And I think that kind of, obviously at some moment and what we do, we have to kind of sign it off and go, there it is. But there's something about the process of it continually growing that I think I really learned from him, which I think is something I got really from experience, not really from a quote, but from yeah. the actual experience. From his example. And yeah, of living that work with him for a while and just seeing how things would change constantly and not being fearful of that, not holding on to something because it needs to be right. I think you're, you're much better at that than I am about the sort of, you know, not clinging to things too much. Like I think Brian Eno often, you, I've, I've t heard him often talking about that thing of like, the thing that you think is the vital thing. Yeah. Remove that. Remove that, yeah. And like, it often works that. You yeah. th the thing, you've got a problem. you're most attached to. With a song, you think it's completely ludicrous to remove that thing, let's say the piano or mm. the, the drums, and then you find out that that all along was... Yeah, it's your attachment to it. Yeah. Crazy shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank you very much. Thank allowing you. us to come into your studio yeah. and see where you recorded, how you recorded. I should just mention, because I was really impressed by them, but there's piles of these notebooks all over the place, um, which is a rarity in studios, I think, these days to see paper mm. no but they're clearly they're been props. used and loved <laughs> <laughs> we put them in earlier before you're very arrived. effective <laughs> but thanks so much it's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you both. thank you and we should leave people with one more song or a little taste of another element of the record another track what do you think should be our outro piece smiling so what you were going to oh, say oh yeah that's so this is the our outro track today but also the closing track on the album mm. this is smiling all the way back home thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode if you have a moment do tell your friends and leave us a review it all really helps thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show i'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes it relies on your support if you'd like to donate please head to our website once again thank you for listening until next time goodbye Party's nearly over I sat there on the sofa Kinda close, but getting closer I know that you gotta go But I don't wanna say goodbye It's been so long since I Stayed up late at night With someone that I like I'm gonna be smiling all the way back home Smiling all the way back home I'm gonna be smiling all the way Smiling all the way Smiling all the way back home We're on the street now We're stalling through the driveway Keeps a call